This series is important to every one of our lives. The truth is, our lives are part of something much greater than we understand or can imagine. Now, let's learn about the kingdom of God and how we play into it. We're in a series on the kingdom of God. Today is part three, and this series is very sequential meaning we are building upon what we learn each week. So if you miss something, either because you're out or maybe you're a guest here for the first time, um, you're going to want to go and catch the other parts, especially if you are a guest and this is you like what you hear. You say, well, I want to understand how we got to this part of the series. So you can go and catch all this online or on app. It's it's all right there for you. But I'll do a, a quick little review just so that what I'm saying today will still make plenty of sense to every one of us. We began the series in part one, answering the question, how did we get to such a broken world? I mean, God and his kingdom is ruling. God wins in the end. What, what exactly is happening around us? How did we get to such a messed up state? God created everything perfect. And what we learned was that mankind simply rebelled against the authority of God. And when he did, thousands of years ago, everything that he had was lost. Two most important things. Number one, he had a perfect relationship with God. Gone. And he had dominion of creation. Gone. And both of those were then lost. But there was good news because in part two, we understood that even in the beginning, started in Genesis three, God tells us about it, which is about as beginning for you and me as it gets, that he had a plan. He knew what was happening. He knew what he was going to do. He told us Jesus was coming as early as Genesis three, that he would crush the head of Satan through the offspring of woman, begins with Jesus, finishes with you and me, the body of Jesus on the earth. That is the church. And what that means for you and me today, I hope you get excited about this, but never forget, you and I are the greatest threat to the kingdom of darkness since Jesus came out of the tomb. Yeah. I'm Y'all are like, should we? Yeah, yeah, you should have, but that's okay. I mean, not for me. That's not for me. That's for, that's for Satan to go, what? They heard that? They're excited about that? What if they get excited about that? So anyway, it leads us to uh, what we're going to talk about today in part three, the next step along the kingdom. I'll tell you a little something about me that'll help, help bridge the, the uh, gap of where we're going in the series today. Um, I, I'm a person who likes things black and white or cut and dry. I'm not sure what the opposite of cut and dry is. We'll stick with black and white because I know gray. Gray is the opposite of that, right? And some of you are like me. You like things to be exactly the way they should be. I got anybody like me in the room, right? You like things fair. You like things consistent. You like things logical. Everything should be as it should be. People should be treated the way they're supposed to be treated. People should give the right answer. People should do what they can do. People should help when they can help. It's just very, very simple, right? I mean, that is the world we live in. It should be that way, except it's not the world we live in. The world we live in is opposite of that. It's very, very gray. And uh, somebody drives by you really fast and they cut you off and you think they should get a ticket, but you get a ticket. And they don't, it's like, what? Wait a minute, this world is not right. Something is so, so wrong. And uh, when I was in my 20s, I, I had an encounter where this was the first time I began to discover kind of that's how I viewed the world. I think I always knew that, but no one had ever confronted me on it. So I was right out of college and uh, I, I became an assistant band director and the head band director was a little older in life, uh, had been down the road a little bit and had discovered sometimes the world just is gray. That just happens. But I was struggling with some of the things he was doing because I thought his that's just gray was him not being consistent or not doing things that, that I liked the way they should be done. And so after we had had a, a few head-butting moments, one day we're driving between rehearsals and, and we're in the car and he just says, Jimmy, you know what your problem is? And I don't want to hear anything you're going to say after that, just for the record. 
Anybody did? No, we don't like that. He says, you know what your problem is? Usually everything is black and white. And I thought, sitting up straight in my seat, of course I do. I'm proud to be principled. I hate gray. There should be no gray. And I think as, uh, as he, he encountered my resistance on that and discovered he wasn't going to change my mind or win that argument, he simply just ended it with, your life is going to be very hard. And little did I know how hard it would be because it took some time for me to discover the world is gray. Gray things happen. Sometimes you can't do much about it. And if you want everything to be black and white, you judge everything that is gray. You end up with a critical spirit and you judge people who do things that are gray. And uh, then people don't like you and you end up with a hard life. He was right. But the reason I really tell you that is because where it showed up most was in my faith. Now, some of you who like the world gray, this is where you finally join my side. Because what I've discovered as a pastor, nobody likes gray in their faith. We all think it should be black and white. I mean, right, follow this. God wins, Satan loses, black and white. Jesus rose from the dead, so suffering should not exist, black and white. Now, I'm a Christian, my life should be easier, black and white. I pray he answers, black and white, because he's good and I have faith, black and white. Like, this should be easy, shouldn't it? And I should not need a fly swat. <laughs> you didn't see part two, you won't get that one. The world really should be black and white. If God's kingdom has come, if God is winning, if Jesus defeated Satan, why do we live in a world with so much gray? Why do we pray and we don't get answers? Why do things not turn out the way that they should if God's on his throne? I mean, y'all with me? Why is there so much gray? And that's where we are today as we jump into part three. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles, you can. We're gonna be in Hebrews chapter two. And I'm gonna show with you one of the top verses that I think every believer should know if they wanna study the kingdom of God. Honestly, this is such an important verse. If you were gonna memorize five verses in the Bible, I think this should be one of them because this one will help you every time you wake up and the world is gray. This one will help you help other people when they object to something they think should be so black and white in their faith. Matter of fact, I've met people who have refused to become a believer in Jesus because they, they lift something that's not black and white. And they just say, well, it, it, it's just gray. It looks like God doesn't know what's going on. Gray causes people to abandon faith. And if we can see this insight, something that we've missed all too often, and you could know it and share it, I think you could change some people's minds. So what is this verse that I'm talking about? Hebrews 2, 7 and 8. says, you, the Father, have crowned him, Jesus, with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. That sounds black and white to me, doesn't it? He put everything in subjection to Jesus. Nothing is outside of his control. That's as black and white as it gets. Can you imagine with me like a medieval king, a movie of one of those time periods? You know what happens when the king walks into the room? Everybody bows. They all go down to a knee. Most of them even look at the ground. They're even afraid to look up. Nobody dares stand up because everyone bows when the king comes, right? Everything has been put in subjection to Jesus' feet. He's left nothing outside of him. Everything should be as it is. That's black and white. The problem is the verse doesn't end there. And the very next words are, at present, we do not yet see. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What? 
Everything is in subjection to him. Nothing is outside of his control. But at this moment, in reality, you and I don't see that. This is the difference between the already done and the not yet seen. The already done and the not yet seen. Let me show it to you in Philippians. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the highest name, right? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. Wait a minute, why not every knee does bow? Well, we do know every knee will bow. The Bible also says that. Every knee will bow, but right now, it's only every knee should bow. The highest name, the king, the one and only king, the only one to raise from the dead, the highest name above all names, every knee should bow, everyone is in subjection to him, but we don't see it. My pastor taught it to me like this. We live in the tension between the already done and the not yet seen. That's our reality. That's your reality. You and I live in an era, it's the human era, where we live on the earth in between what is already done in the heavenlies and what is yet to be manifest upon the earth. What is already done and not yet seen. And there's a tension. And do you love the word tension? We don't like the word tension, but that's exactly where we live. We live in a tension. Every day of our lives is going to be the tension between what has already been done and what is not yet seen. And some may say, well, how, how can this be? I don't, I don't understand let me give you an, an illustration. I'm gonna give you actually two wartime illustrations today because the idea of the kingdom of God coming upon the earth is a spiritual battle. Y'all understand that? And so the best illustration for spiritual battles are battles. And so uh, for those of you that did well in history class, that'll, you'll enjoy this sermon a little bit better. But if we could all go back to June 6th, 1944, we were coming to the end of World War II. And for many years, the German forces had kind of done whatever they wanted throughout Europe. They had expanded, they had conquered they had done some evil things, as we found out later. Basically, anything at will. But now things were changing a little bit. On the eastern side, the Russians were pressing in. And they thought, well, that's okay for now. But then on D-Day, June 6th, the Allied forces on the western side, largely British and American, the Germans thought they had impenetrable defenses that uh, weren't so impenetrable. It did cost a lot, but as the Allied forces landed and now Germany is being squeezed on both sides, history will tell us, and the Germans knew at the time, that for all intents and purposes, this war is over. They knew it. They were struggling to fight one battle, and now they are being crushed on both sides. They knew morale was down, supplies were down, they were in trouble. There was no way for victory. And yet, the war raged on. Why would a war keep going if a war is already ended? But that's exactly the state they were in. It was already done, as far as anyone knows. This war is over. But it takes time to play out in reality the not yet seen. The already done and the not yet seen is the tension. And just for you and me, we see that every day in our lives. Spiritual progress in the heavenlies does not always manifest on the earth at the time we want or in the way we want. And that is our struggle. So what we have so far is a gap between what is already done and what is not yet seen upon the earth. The question we need to ask then is what is happening in this gap? What, why is this, this even taking place? And there's a, another analogy for, for war that'll help you. But first, let me just explain. 
What is happening in this time is there is a battle between what is intangible and what is tangible. Maybe we can put it this way. There's a battle between what is abstract and what is physical. And here, here's, let me give you this illustration. If we could all use our history this time, we'll go back to July 3rd, 1776. And if you were walking around July 3rd, 1776 and asked someone, where are you? They would say, I'm in a British colony. Let's go forward two days to July 5th, 1776. And if you were to go and ask someone, where are you? Some, not all, but some would answer, we're in the new United States. Some would still give the other answer. You see, what happened on July 4th, 1776, is an abstract rule called the United States government said, we're ruling ourselves. This is our land. And on that same day, July 4, 1776, there was a king on a throne across the water who said, I rule, and this is my land. And what ensued for years was a battle between two abstract rules fighting over a physical land. The intangible trying to become the tangible, trying to figure out who actually owns this territory, who rules over it. Now, I want you to imagine Thomas Jefferson comes running into the Continental Congress on July 4th as Various people are signing their names to the declaration. And he, he comes running in and says, hey, everybody, I invented a time machine and I've traveled to the future and I've come back. And I went to 1950 and I went to a bookstore. And in 1950, there was a book on the shelf entitled The History of the United States of America. We win. Imagine. And by the way, you need to remember they didn't know the future. They lived with doubt and fear. Some lived with anxiety as the battle got worse and it really didn't look like they were going to win. They were going to lose everything they had and their lives. And yet they still fought. Guess what? You and I don't need a time machine. We don't need fear. We don't need doubt because we do have the end and we know exactly what side we're on and we know that our side wins. Can I get an amen from somebody for that? See, gray reflects the battle between what has happened in the heavenly realm and what is yet to happen upon the physical earth. Gray represents the battle for authority of this land and possession of the land. And what happens sometimes is that a force occupies a land that was never meant to rule. Did y'all get that? Sometimes a force occupies a land that was never meant to rule. And that is the reality you and I have experienced ever since the fall of mankind. Satan has been ruling a territory that was never meant to be his. And God has called his kingdom, the people in his kingdom, his church to take that back. We are here to get rid of an occupying force. Somebody want some good news? There is a black and white day coming. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That sounds like original creation. Matter of fact, it is. If we read at the end of the book where that was, we can read in the middle of the book, we can go to the beginning of the book. Everywhere in there, we find God's plan. God will be their God. They will be his people. God wants to dwell with his people and speak to his people. It's been his plan that he's been doing from the beginning. He has never been thwarted. He has always been carrying out his purpose. And that's what gives us faith on our bad days. We talked about that last week, right? Black and white is coming. 
But tomorrow you and I will wake up in gray. Because for now, you and I still live in the tension between the already done and the not yet seen. So we've answered two really good questions. Why is there a gap between the already done and the not yet seen? And the second question, what's happening in this gap? Here's a good question. A third question. Why doesn't God just end it? I mean, at what point does God Almighty on the throne not just say, enough, done? Why do we have to wake up tomorrow? Why can I tell you tomorrow you'll live in the gray again? Why can we not just say, God, now? Simple answer. Jesus' part is done. Ours is not. Jesus' part is done, ours is not. We read this verse last week. His purpose was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, pay attention to the verb tense here. I'm not gonna give a grammar lesson, but just notice, should be made known. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Talking about something that is yet to happen, that will come in the future. It should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished, past tense, already done. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Accomplished, yes, already done. Should be made known, exactly, not yet seen. Already done, not yet seen. See, here's the reality. There are people disconnected from God and he loves them. There are people disconnected from God and he loves them. And he's waiting patiently for them. He's not waiting on angels. He's waiting on you and me as he waits for them. We were the ones given the mandate to go and rescue anyone trapped in the kingdom of darkness. We are the ones that are on the earth to change eternal destinies, you and me. So if you would allow me, I'm gonna take you back to this verse that we just looked at now that we preached it last week and we've touched on all of it. I, I wanna give you the kingdom of God translation. If you'll allow me to, to take each word that we've taken apart over these two weeks and to preach it all together, here's what this verse actually says. If you'll put this back on the screen for me. His purpose was that during the tension of the already and the not yet seen, through you and me existing as an instrument of God to advance the kingdom upon the earth, all the believers who call Jesus king, that the manifold plan that God began from the very beginning, saying he would always do, that he would bring the offspring of woman to crush the head of Satan, that that should be made known because it needs to be made known, because it is not known. Because you and I live in a world where we think it is. Most of us say, I don't need to tell somebody about Jesus. If they wanted to come to church, they could. They already know about Jesus. They've got Bibles. They've got Christian radio stations. They've got Spotify. They've got everything. And the reality you need to know is that day has passed. The idea that we live in a nation where virtually every home has a Bible, that day has passed. The idea that we live in a nation where virtually every person knows what Easter is about, that day has passed. We now live in an era in a nation where people don't know what Easter is. They don't know what Christmas is and they don't know who Jesus is other than some nice dude from long ago. Seriously. That's why it should be made known. That's why his intent was that right now in the tension between the already and the not yet through you and me, his instrument living upon the earth would make his plan known, the gospel, Jesus came, rescued them all. We would make that known, not only to our neighbors, but to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Translation of that, your life matters in a way you could never imagine. 
according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, one eternal purpose. Not plan Z, he's not thwarted, he's not coming up with new ideas, he's doing exactly what he said he would always do. Satan is not winning. That was worthy of an amen, but that's okay. So what do we do? You and I live in the tension between the already and the not yet. You will wake up tomorrow and your world will be gray. What do we do in the tension? Let me share a truth with you you need to know. Satan does not occupy creation unhindered. And we're here to hinder him. All of you who were bullies in the third grade, your moment has come. If you enjoyed putting tacks on someone else's chair, jumping out behind the door, saying boo, making your teacher's life miserable, you were the smart aleck in class, your moment has come. Except now stop hindering everybody else and start hindering Satan. This is why we are here, to hinder him. Because he does not occupy this land unhindered. We are here to stop what he is wanting to do. We are hindering the effects of Satan. And it starts with a soul. What you need to know is that every single person in your life that does not proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are there to hinder what Satan is trying to do in their lives. You see, their very life is territory that is occupied by the wrong force. We're called to make that difference. You know what one of the, the best strategies of the kingdom of darkness is? That we care so much about what people think of us. The devil loves how much we care about what people think of us. You know, you get excited, you hear a sermon like this, and you kind of, okay, 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 I think I can do this. You walk in there, work, and hey, Bob, Bob, how you doing, man? I've been praying for you. Just one thing, I've been praying for you. Hey, uh, you want to come to church with me next week? Then Bob looks at you and goes, don't talk to me about that Jesus stuff. Shut up and never mention it again. (laughs) Okay, you're like a little dog that got kicked. You know, you make a little squill as you back up. I, I, I did what I shouldn't have done. Talked about politics or religion. No, shouldn't have done that. Now we're going to be awkward at work and now he's not going to eat lunch with me. Oh no. Has the logic ever occurred to us? We care about what someone thinks of us who's going to hell. We care more of what they think of us than the fact that they're going to hell. Can, can we just be really obvious? Why do you care if they think well of you if they don't think well of God? If they don't think well of the one who's actually perfect and true, if they don't think well of Jesus, then why do you think they're going to think well of you? And if they do, maybe we're not representing him very well. I mean, it's occupied territory. And as soon as they say, get back and leave me alone, we're like, oh, okay. Do I have any salesmen in the room? Anybody in here makes a living as a salesman, like a good living as a salesman? One of the hands went down. That's funny. Anyway. (laughs) Every service, it's been less than 10 hands. That either means most of you don't want to tell me what you do for a living, or the reality is most of us are not salesmen. And we don't think like a salesman. But see, here's what a salesman gets. They never take no for an answer. Matter of fact, after I preached this at our Thursday service, the salesman came up to me and he said, You know what a no is? One step closer to a yes. You see, if you look at a salesman and say, I'm not interested, they've already got an answer for that. Because they know that what they have 
is worthy for you to have, or at least they believe it. And you and I should believe that the secret to eternal life and forgiveness and removal of shame and and everything that God has done to be brought into our lives and to have a purpose that matters. We should be so excited for that that we should not care if we get a no. We should not care because we should be able to, when they go, "Uh, no, I I don't want your your invitation to to Easter at your church. Say, okay, Christmas is coming. I'll give you that one. Well, I ain't coming to Christmas either. Well, that's okay. We'll do a series in the new year about how to have a better life. I'll I'll invite you then. Well, I ain't coming then either. Well, I'll invite you when we do one on our marriage and I'm gonna pray for you in the meantime, every single day. I don't want you praying for me. Too bad you can't stop me because I don't want you going to hell. I mean, why? <laughs> we, we encounter occupied territory and we get one no and go, okay, okay, okay. Satan, you can have it. But our whole role is to hinder the occupying force. It starts with a soul. And then it takes a step, maybe to something like your school. You could do something at your school. Let me tell you a story. It's a pastor friend of mine now, but he got saved as a teenager and he didn't grow up in a, a church environment. He didn't grow up in a church nation. Church was on the side. So when he recognized who Jesus was, it was a real thing. See, a lot of us do go to church and we don't always have real faith that's passionate in our hearts. But for him, it was, was like, whoa, wait a minute. This is a real thing. Jesus really died. I'm really going to heaven. Like, wow, everybody should know this. So as a teenager, giving his life to Jesus, he says, I, I, I go to school every day with all these people that are going to hell. I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll just pray for them. I, I'll gather in the cafeteria and invite people to pray with me and we'll pray for everybody in our school that's not going to heaven. So he told people in school, hey, I'm gonna be in the cafeteria every day praying for everybody in our school that doesn't know Jesus. You can join me. How do y'all think that went over? So day one, he goes into the cafeteria. Nobody joins him. Day two, goes into the cafeteria to pray for everybody. Nobody joins him. The next day, he continues to pray and nobody joins him. On top of that, the people he's praying for are actually ridiculing him. Like, that's stupid, man. What are you doing? You know how the story goes. Day after day after day. For six months, not one person joined him. But every day in the cafeteria, he prayed for everybody else in the school. And then one person joined him. And then another person joined him. Then another. Until by the end of the school year, over 200 people were praying with him in the cafeteria every single day for everybody who did not know Jesus. Yeah. So then he's like, well, what should we do now? This is a true story. So he started chartering a bus and organized field trips on the weekend to go into neighboring communities. Uh, All the parents were like, sure, you can go. They thought a teacher did it. It was was a 14-year-old kid chartering a bus and leading outreaches. He planted his first church at 17. And we all look at him and go, what a prodigy. The truth is no. He was just somebody who saw a no as a step to a yes. And every single student in this church could do the exact same thing. You don't have to be a prodigy to start praying for people at school. And every single adult could do the same thing. You don't have to be a prodigy to start something where you work. And to say, hey, every day during lunch, if anybody wants to join me, or maybe every Monday at lunch, if you want to join me, we'll just have a little discussion. Maybe we'll do a little Bible study, or maybe we'll just talk about God. Why don't we just get together and talk about what everybody thinks about God? We can do that every every Monday if you want to join me. 
If you just wanna listen to what we all think about God, just join me and see what God would do in your place of business. Maybe it'd be your neighborhood. Maybe some of you would get together and say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm ready to occupy some territory Satan's had too long. I'm ready to get him out of here. Let's hinder him a little bit. Let's just start prayer walking or prayer driving. You can prayer drive your neighborhood. Get together once a week, get together every day. Whatever God puts on your heart, you can go and do. What if it's not a school or a business or a neighborhood? What if it's a whole city? What if someone began to pray over a city 24 hours a day, seven days a week to hinder the effects of Satan in that city? Every idea I've given you, by the way, I want you to know they were carefully chosen. They are all real ideas that do take place that people do. These are not things that are hypothetical. Everyone that I named you could do. Matter of fact, the last one is going to happen. The last one of this city, Columbia, being prayed for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The idea is that an individual church takes the day of the month and another church takes the next day. And then each church divides the 24 hours however they want to. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, your city is prayed for that what Satan wants to do is hindered and that territory is taken back. We actually have a meeting in about three weeks from pastors all across the city coming together as we're going to launch 24 seven prayer here in Columbia. You can take your neighborhood, you can do your business, you can take your school. So I leave you with a simple question. What are you going to do? What do you, my prayer for you today is that every single one of us would just get one idea. One idea, just, just one. Every time I go for a jog, I'm going to pray for my neighborhood. I'm gonna, I'm gonna prayer run my neighborhood every, every, just one idea to hinder the occupying force in our world. Let me leave you with this encouragement. Out of 1 Corinthians 15, it's how Paul wrapped up one of his letters. He says, so my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Don't take no for an answer. He who is in you is greater. You are here to hinder. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Nothing you do is useless. A rejected invitation to an Easter service, it's not useless. Invite them later. You're just laying a foundation to the next yes. A prayer that didn't seem to be answered the way you thought, it's not useless. You just haven't seen it yet. It's already done. Not yet seen. A good deed you didn't get the appreciation you wanted, it's not useless. God sees. It's laying a foundation in their heart. An outreach, you felt sure that person you met that day would show up in church that next Sunday, it's not useless. Nothing you do in the name of the Lord is useless. Because every single action we take is bringing the rule of God into a tangible world where you and I exist. It is bringing black and white to a world that is gray. Every single thing we do, we just need to do something. We just need to take those steps. God is moving in the midst of the gray through his church. That's why the devil hates the church. That's why the devil fears the church. What if you figure out why you're actually here? What if you come up with one idea to bring God's rule into your school or your business or your neighborhood? What if you do just one thing? Matter of fact, I think the devil fears that you might figure out there's more to life than what you've been living. 
You're not just. You're not just a dad planning a vacation for his family. You're not just a mom who's overwhelmed with all the kids. You're not just a student who can't wait to graduate. You're not just a business owner who hopes to make payroll. You're not just a soldier hoping for promotion. You're not just anything. You are the most dangerous threat to the kingdom of darkness since Jesus came out of the tomb. You are the church on planet Earth. And you would say, why is it still such a fight? I'm gonna leave you at last thought. Because everyone, everyone matters to Satan. It's the same reason we saw at the end of World War II. When they knew they were defeated, they didn't give up. They continued to hurt and they continued to kill. Satan knows his time is short. The Bible confirms it. Satan knows he's on the wrong side. The Bible confirms it. But everyone matters. And if he can fight and keep just one more person trapped in the kingdom of darkness, if he can keep just one more, and let me say this, if one matters to Satan, do you know how much more one matters to God? And do you know how much more one should matter to you and me? That is why churches, in my opinion, should be crowded. That is why churches should grow because we should go after every one. And when we reach one, we go to the next one and the one after that and the one after that. We hate crowds, I hate crowds, you hate crowds. I bet you hate that you have to come in here and stand in line to get your kids back out of G-Kids. Do thank you for standing in line, don't leave your kids here. I bet you hate that you have to drive up and down the aisles, the parking team waving and smiling and you're like, I'm not smiling, I wanna park up in that, you know it. And, and it's getting more crowded and you have to walk further and, and, and you have to stand in line and, and then somebody already emptied all the coffee when you come in. And Somebody had your seat. And, and, but the crowds represent one plus one plus one plus one because every one matters to God. Let's go take the rule of the kingdom of God into this land and hinder this nasty occupying force known as the kingdom of darkness. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for how good you are, that you gave us an incredible meaning and purpose to life. Actually, God, we just take a minute and say thank you for entrusting to us the greatest mission, the greatest mission. Jesus did his part and then said, I give it to you. I put it in your hands. God, we ask you to forgive us for when we haven't done that, for when we haven't realized how great our purpose is. Today, God, though, we say thank you. Would you give us a passion? Would it be more than just the knowledge in our head of what we've heard, but would you light something in our hearts that's undeniable, that we can't stop, that makes us go after everyone, every neighborhood, every city, that makes us bring your rule into every part of this world? God, you're so good. If you just stay in a place of prayer, I want to speak to those of you that have yet to make Jesus your king. As we've talked about all today and really all throughout the series, the condition of humanity is to be born a prisoner in the kingdom of darkness. 
It doesn't matter if we like it or want to hear it. It's our reality. The good news is God didn't leave us there because he sent his son Jesus to die in our place so that he could pay for our sins and that we could be raised from the dead. We call it the free gift of salvation. It makes us a citizen in his kingdom. And if you have never made the exchange of what Jesus has for you, for the life you've been living, I wanna help you do that right now, whether you are online or right here in the room, simply pray. Say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And now I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. Thank you that I'm forgiven. In my simple prayer today, would you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom? Amen. Would y'all help me celebrate with them? Amen.